Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, all. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I hope you're enjoying your 2024 as we have started in this year. So I want to start with a the classic reminder that this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. It does not constitute working with a licensed mental health provider, but if there is one in your area, please seek them out to work on your unique issues. So as we start continue this start of 2024, uh, I have the pleasure of introducing you to someone that I had seen. Uh, well, I went to this convention in uh, September of 2023, First time I'm able to go. It's been a long time desire to go, but finally got my ass there. And uh, as we were sort of just taking in all the sites, one particular day, they happened to sit in the down next to me as they were talking with some other people. And I said, hello. And they said, hello. And then I realized, oh, this is the person I had been watching one of the earlier online adventures uh, or online seminar talks from Big Bad Con. And at that point, it says, Oh, I've wanted to always talk to you. Would you like to be on the podcast? So what I'd love to introduce you all to is our guest, who is Pam Panzana. Uh, Pam Panzana is a queer Filipina game worker based in Ontario, Canada. She does narrative, uh, she does narrative work, design, editing, and inclusive consultation, sensitivity, and cultural for tabletop role-playing games. Beyond developing personal projects of her own, uh, she has uh, let's hear that Sundu own, which is Sundu, the second fight, uh, Navathan's End, and an up-and-coming Dagger's Isle supplements for Blades in the Dark. And it was a talk about Dagger's Isle that I had seen that just said, oh, yes, I want to talk with this person. Uh, she has been credited with multiple tabletop games, including Dungeons & Dragons, Journey Through the Radiant Citadel, Hunter the Reckoning, Werewolf, The Apocalypse, Thirsty Sword Lesbians, Advanced Swords and Lesbians, uh, Spire, uh, Shadow Operations, just to name a few of the multitude of various tabletop games that they have been a part of. Uh, let's see here. Their work has earned her multiple nominations, including the Innies and the Nebula Award. Similarly, her community work has been recognized by award-winning bodies like the Di- Diana Wynne-Jones Award. Prior to doing game design, Pam was pursuing an MA in literature and cultural studies at, I'm not even, oh, it's, uh, I'm not going to pronounce the university, but it is in Manila University, where she juggled her teaching responsibilities with academic studies. She moved on to work as a legal compliance officer for a small real estate firm, but continued to organize play-facing tabletop adventures for her queer folks and women in Manila. In addition to this, she was on the floors at the same, uh, at some of the largest esports and gaming convention in the Philippines, doing coverage through a feminist lens. Two of the notable events Pam organized together with a team of like-minded individuals was looks like Lacana Con, the first queer feminine-faced tabletop event in Manila, and Session Zero, the first South. A Southeast Asian facing table con, tabletop con in the industry. In 2019, Pam shifted full time into game design and following a transform- transformative experience at Big Bad Con in San Francisco. She was one of the POC Programming Committee scholars, a, a group that she has served as leadership for ever since. In specific, Pam is in charge of the Southeast Asian delegates, ensuring that more aspiring game workers from the global South make or meet important industry professionals in tabletop and video gaming. At present, Pam is continuing her community work in an elevating position. She's the executive director of Dames, Mar- Dames Making Games, a Canadian non-for-profit for marginalized digital artists and game workers. She is also doing her first seminar or first semester at Sheridan College, teaching a course called, called Stories, Quests, and Missions. So welcome to Untying Knots. That is a very impressive and I'm happy to read bio. 
<laughs> Thank you. It's uh, it's been a journey <laughs> to say the definitely, least. <laughs> definitely. I mean, just the number of things that you stepped into, were able to create the first of, are all both impressive and all very much needed. <laughs> So beyond what I said there, what are other things that helped you get into the get to where you are and bring you to where you are today? Um, I think it was mostly just persistence because to contextualize for a more American audience, right? Tabletop and gaming in general is very niche in my country. There is a mm-hmm. high basically there is a one percent, and then there's everybody else. That's that's how it right. works there because it is a third world country. Mm-hmm. So anything that is a hobby is seen as a luxury, especially mm-hmm. if it's gaming, because gaming is extremely expensive. And there is a very real literacy barrier in which most people do not actually speak or read English well. And mm-hmm. most games are unfortunately in English. So mm-hmm. there's right. a lot of many things, right? And I grew up reading Advanced Dungeons and Dragons and Warhammer more than I mm-hmm. read children's books because of my brothers. <laughs> so... I At the time that I was about to enter college, there were no game design courses. So I took the next best thing, which I like doing, which is English literature, because I did want mm-hmm. to teach and I also wanted to write. Mm-hmm. And on the side, even as I was in college, I was already trying to set up conventions with friends and do volunteer work at the local anime cons. So mm-hmm. I guess the seed was there this whole time. Uh, and um, Southeast Asian folks did get together to make the Session Zero Con. And that was an interesting flashpoint for many of us because the organizers and I all agreed that in order to participate in that con, you actually have to have games to sell. So a lot Mm. of people who were on the fence about being game designers suddenly felt pressure to actually produce a game so Mm -hmm. that they could participate. So upwards of 30 to 50 people came together and brought their games. Yeah, it was great. And uh, some of those... um, Some of those games actually showed up in 2019 when I came to Big Bad Con. Uh, mm-hmm. I brought a suitcase full of them, and I was just mm-hmm. passing them around to people, selling them when I could, and taking accounts for my people back home. So yeah, it was a it, it's a it's a multi level level question how you get into the industry. Uh, I think I was also lucky in that my efforts are recognized by key people who mm-hmm. also have the inclination not to pull the ladder up, but to lower it down as far as they can. Because mm-hmm. since those people were impressed with what I had been trying to do, and I was also really putting myself out there, I guess because I felt loved and supported enough to do so, and I really was confident in my own abilities. Uh, Mm -hmm. They said, okay, cool. Well, let's get you your first contracts. And I guess the rest is history. (laughs) So, Oh, yes. (laughs) Very much on that. I admit, BidBadCom was quite an experience for myself, finally being able to go. And I was sitting there with um, Bridget Jeffries of Symphony Entertainment. Right. uh, And we're sort of both going back and forth. And uh, there was a moment I turned to look at her. She's sort of staring at the room. And I said, so it's like, what's going on? And she says, this is the first time I've seen this many people of color right. in, uh, and we were at the dinner. Uh, I wasn't able to make the meet and greet, but in this many of people of color at a convention. And that room was 200, 200 of us right. sitting there. And this was a conversation we'd had when I first met her. And I interviewed her about the experience of being people of color in the gaming environment as right. well. Right. Yeah. It's, and, uh... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. You go right ahead. I'm just happy to listen. (laughs) Well, it's it's interesting because while the convention is far from perfect, the point in my eyes is to get it started, right? Mm -hmm. I I had a bit of a post-con wrap-up with a very good friend of mine, and he told me, because I was having... Uh, another moment of deep leadership anxiety, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because with with uh, with Ajit George stepping down, and he was kind of the head of the POC programming committee, and Sean Nittner also saying, "Hey, I'm going to hang up the towel and pass the baton of BBC mm-hmm. down to another person." Um, I was like, "Well, where? How do we proceed from here? Because obviously, this is very important to many people. It might not work for everybody, but it works for enough for it to make a difference in their lives." Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I am not one to make grand accolades. I realize about I am doing this because it's going to change a wide, a wide room, right? I feel mm-hmm. like in all of the work I've done and advocacy and consultancy, 
and other matters. It's uh, the moment you start thinking that you can signpost that you're the main hero and you're going to fix everything is the moment mm-hmm. you have actually failed to actually espouse change. You have to look at the grassroots of things and see how far you can push with as many folks as you have the capacity for, right? right. And for me, I was sharing all of that with my friend and he told me, well, look at it this way. Big Bad Con is not perfect, but your bar is already up here. You can only mm. go back to that bar or improve. There's no actual room for failure because you cannot fail. That's how good Big Bad Con is now. You're already up here. You're going to be fine unless you you close shop or you're somebody does something absolutely catastrophic. Uh, you're you're going to be okay, even if this incoming year is going to be hard. So that was very uh, nice to hear. <laughs> very much so. Well, I think it also goes back to that classic quote that if uh, you live long enough, you stop being the hero and you start being the villain. And especially mm-hmm. when you get lost in that power right. standpoint, or especially the ego standpoint, yeah, you're heading towards, you're now your villainly arc as opposed to your hero arc. <laughs> and like, what is a hero really, right? My my father, mm-hmm. for example, is very, uh, he's very conservative in his thinking. He's a survivor like my mother of martial law in the 1980s mm-hmm. of the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And he once told me, what is heroism? But getting yourself into a really bad situation on purpose and then being lucky enough to survive. That was like, <laughs> that's a very interesting perspective to have in which mm-hmm. his elaboration for that was real heroism if you even want to call it heroism at all is somebody who has been constantly watching the ground constantly looking out for themselves and for their for their people and mm-hmm. after you fulfilled your capacity there then you very carefully and gradually expand your light so that more people can participate and you can't convince all of them but you can certainly choose your battles and see who might be willing to stand with you you can't have somebody who will just like wave decently mm. in the background and say good luck man you, you need people who are willing to stick their necks out for you the way that you stick their necks out for them and mm-hmm. uh, have a very sensitive eye towards power dynamics towards real motivations and who's honest with you at what times and who isn't so it's a it's such enlightening is- advice <laughs> oh definitely and i think it's also one of those things too based off of that that we don't really get discussed in the hero narratives or the, especially the, uh, and going, no crowning on Joseph Campbell, but the standpoint of those hero narrative. And even then the hero narratives he talks about is what's been slimmed down for people to easily understand. Uh, I was talking to Logan Bose, who those of you listening was the one we started off this year with, uh, he was talking about Coyote and Crow and the aspect of just his own studies of Native American storytelling. The idea of the one is not something that exists there. No. So how much of even what you just mentioned is so much more of what would be processed in a Native American or even indigenous culture's idea yeah. of what a hero is versus, shall we say, this Western European dominant yeah. culture idea that they have to be this Luke Skywalker, Batman, um, <laughs> Neo from the Matrix, whatever it is. Right. It's interesting too, because um, he, I think a hero narrative later bled into the very American exceptionalist idea, right? Of, mm-hmm. uh, I am one person raging against the man, the man being right. whatever you choose, right? But at the end of the day, it still leads back to an uncomfortable reality that the majority of the world's cultures don't actually understand, comprehend, and refuse to believe in, that you're the Mm -hmm. main character of your own story. Mm -hmm. Uh, The essence of a true leader is someone who is not the main character of their own story, right? They've they've chosen other things. Uh, They know how to manage themselves. They have an eye for community, right? Um, I have a very good friend, Liam Stevens. He's Maori. Mm -hmm. And he was explaining how in their own culture, this sense of one person just doesn't exist. You're not one person. You're never one person. You are your ancestors. You are your home. You are your mm-hmm. community and all of the communities connected to you, yourself. You're not, you're not a person. <laughs> you are a group. Mm-hmm. You're like many groups in one body. And to pay homage to that is important, right? And in, in the Philippines also, 
uh, we have a very funny position of being five times colonized, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of push and pull between, I guess, our more Americanized sensibilities and uh, some influence from the Spanish, depending on where you're from. Mm-hmm. And also our own our own roots, respectively, because we were never really a country uh, until the colonizers came in. Uh, yeah, we were group a whole all bunch the aisles. Of, right? Like, we were just a whole bunch of, like, I can't even say kingdoms because that word is not accurate, but mm-hmm. communes, I guess, or uh, ethnic groups that mm-hmm. all did their own thing and were happy to come together when they needed to. But otherwise, we respect each other in our diversity and differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, the exceptionalism is something that I always have uh, deep issues with uh, because it mm-hmm. leads into, of course, gaming spaces in which... Uh, I have gotten very interesting commentary ever since 2019 of how uh, because I aspire to actually do full-time things in games and I am fine 100%. If Watsi hired me today, I'd be like, sure, hell yeah, how much and where do I go? Right. <laughs> right? Uh, I've had many fiery um, fighters, I guess, tell me I'm selling out. And I'm like, that's a funny thing to say uh, when the reality is I am choosing to be mm-hmm. stable for myself because mm-hmm. I cannot help any of you if I'm not stable for me. And I mm-hmm. had no illusions going into this industry. Uh, that was another thing that wasn't a very good culture fit initially for me with tabletop in which I've noticed that Americanized spaces tend to uh, insist that you must all be friends somehow. Um, but I'm very, no, we don't. Actually, uh, you you tell me if you want friendship and then let's work that out and see if we're compatible. But business is business. Mm -hmm. And um, what I say as business Pam is different from what designer Pam says and what actual Pam says, where she has her own life with her own concerns, a fiance she loves very much, that Mm -hmm. she wants to migrate here 100 percent. Right. Parents that I need to take care of in the next 20 years, you know, uh, all of those things inform my decisions and I try to do right by them. I don't pretend to be saving game design. I don't pretend that any discourse quote unquote that I participate in is for some higher cause. I like directly, I take gumption with uh, many young designers who go in saying, I'm going to revolutionize games with my game design. And I'm like, it's nice of you to think that you are, Mm -hmm. but please don't tell me that you're doing this for me. Because any benefit to you doesn't mean that you're actually benefiting me, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, um, don't pretend that you're going to change games. Uh, mm. Just be honest with me about your intentions. If you want to change games, let's talk, right? But if you're really just there because you want clout or you want fame or you want to feel good about yourself or you want money, just be upfront about it. <laughs> I don't understand why we have to add a moral ascendancy to our game designer narratives (laughs) you know that probably still has its aspects into the western dominating stories aspects of it because i think also from what i deal with in the therapy environment which is its own similarity is one of the things i often talk about with clients is what is the role that you're playing at any particular time which is similar to what you're saying about communities yeah you're not playing the same role 24 7 you're Mm -hmm. moving multiple faces from being someone's child to being someone's parent to being someone's friend or vice versa. And all of those come with different responsibilities that, yeah, sometimes you got to tell somebody they're being an ass. Sometimes (laughs) basically make sure that this person's ego is very well taken care of. And especially when you're dealing with kids whose emotional selves are still building. Yeah. Yeah. Those are not all the same demands that you need to be kicking in a door with <laughs> yeah it's uh i also feel like uh there's a um, very colonialist uh perspective that folks aren't exactly cognizant of because there is a there's a there, there's a cry for change is how i might be able to put it right since mm-hmm. 2019 that we need to make more tables we need more people of color in the room we need to be a unified front as Mm. many people say, but you cannot be a unified front. You should not be a unified front. You need to be able to have hard conversations with each other. You have to recognize each other's differences and positionalities and and perspectives. The global South reality will never be 
the POC reality in America, mm-hmm. we can find common ground and fight along those things and also agree to some very simple principles, right? But mm-hmm. I cannot fight the battles of my diasporic brothers and sisters in which they also cannot exactly fight for whatever's happening back in my home. Mm-hmm. And I think, honestly, that there's some beauty in that. People need to be less afraid of this uh, because I think it's going to make everybody a lot more honest mm-hmm. in that, you know, let, let us have our communities and you will have yours. We will talk and share and break bread, mm-hmm. but um, making more tables is better than making one table and insisting that everybody sits on it with particular codified behavior and things that they should say. And a, it's my way or the highway behavior. Cause I've seen that a lot in, in tabletop across the years I've been, I'm not like a, I'm still baby in the eyes of a lot of folks who've been doing game design for 10 to 20 years, but I still got something to say about that. Since a lot of those 10 to 20 year game designers are American, they have, they have no sense of what it's like for us. <laughs> Oh, I know, I know, I know exactly what you mean. And when I was talking to Logan about the game that I played while I was there in Coyote Crow, they're just we ended, as he put it, we ended up having his favorite solution to this particular story we played, and ultimately, we did not solve this. We solved it by not actually having to fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the bulk of the party were fighters. I wasn't playing a fighter character, but we found a solution that still gave the fighter something to do, but they actually didn't have to fight. Yeah. And so many of the notions around a tabletop game is, oh yeah, sooner or later you got to fight. Yeah. Yeah. Violence is an an answer. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I actually have a long project I've been thinking of, like an extended article on a mediation and the use of violence. Mm-hmm. in tabletop right because of it with video games is a constant discourse and rightfully so because pretty mm-hmm. much every video game you know has some kind of combat mechanic in it and it's almost mm-hmm. like video games equals violence and that's that mm-hmm. right and there's a wider conversation with respect to video games and how it, many games are actually funded by the same people who are committing genocide in palestine etc cetera, etc cetera, mm-hmm. right like if you if you follow the money you ain't gonna like what you see right with right. video games right but that presupposes that must it really be necessary for tabletop right mm-hmm. uh because i i had a had a client who was um recently who was saying a lot of nice things about how um, D&D is a global culture. And I had to go like, I'm going to stop you right there. Um, that is factually, historically inaccurate right. for the following reasons. Now, my country uh, is all D&D, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but many other countries I've spoken to are not. So mm-hmm. perhaps the more correct thing to say about this game is that it is a culture that is very prominent in English-speaking markets around the world and to America. Uh, let's not assume that America determines everything. Uh, yeah. That's part of the problem that we keep right. assuming that it, that the country does, right? Because <laughs> even Canada has its own positionality in which mm-hmm. Canada and Canadian creators, especially if they're marginalized, tend to be forgotten or glumped into the American dream of games where right. that's not accurate at all and that's something i'm discovering even more now that i'm engaging with game workers and digital artists here so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah which adds that aspect of the dom the whole i whole premise of dealing with the dominant culture and what we're colliding against which is what i really loved when i was listening to your talk about the dagger isles and the differences between the relationships with spirits that were being worked on in dagger isles versus uh blades in the dark which was in a very classic you yeah sorry, roman euro centric empire yeah yeah I, john harper has done fantastic work and i deeply respect him uh and that's part of why i felt this uh need to create a dagger isles is very southeast asian facing because on the other hand many people love the system but I've got the same comment over and over again from many of my POC peers, both Global South and Diasporic, where they were saying, I could not play it because the setting does not make sense to me. Mm-hmm. So I just play Forge in the Dark games or I take Blades and put it in my own city. And I was like, there is something there. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And then when some people were also saying Dagger Isles, what was fascinating to me was that there were two, three principal responses when people looked at the very bare bones lore of Dagger Isles. Some mm-hmm. people said it was Southeast Asia. Some people said it was Africa. Some people said it was South America. Mm-hmm. Now, I am not African or Black, nor am I South American, but I'm absolutely Southeast Asian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I said, okay, let's make a Southeast Asian Dagger Isles because that's near and dear to my heart. I already had some source material from my own game. So let's see how it goes. I made the pitch and uh, Sean and John were like, oh, let's do it. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. it's happening. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but no, but it very much gets into the standpoint of as global majority Yes, indigenous is the premise of why and how we're functioning doesn't match this other world. Yeah, yeah. So whether you're not, you're seeing that similarity because it's like, no, there's an aspect of what community means, what it means for our mutual survival as opposed to individual survival. Yeah, and I think um, it's becoming harder, right? Because mm-hmm. many people are now, especially in light of, uh, of Israel and Palestine, and folks reminding people about Congo and Sudan, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that actually everybody in some form or fashion is complicit. That is the nature of the violent, oppressive systems that have created many of our creature comforts and the things that we literally need to survive. Uh, mm-hmm. There is no such thing anymore as I can't do anything. You can. Now, you don't always have to be doing something 24-7. Mm-hmm. You can be doing something to help. There are ways to be better. There are ways to minimize harm. We're mm-hmm. not in a position anymore where you are innocent and harmless. You are doing harm by breathing. That is something that everybody, and I implore this upon anyone who asks me these hard questions, like, no, you, you accept your accountability for this, that you are not a harmless person. You are not innocent, uh, unfortunately. Were you unaware? A hundred percent. But now that you are aware, do the math. Right? Mm-hmm. Figure out how to mitigate and minimize and transform rather than shirk responsibility and deny accountability and pretend that you can just go back to sleep like nothing happened. Right. right. It's a, uh, it's a lot. Um, like I, there were, I know that some folks online, for example, especially in our game circles were very like, if you're silent about Palestine, you're a terrible human being. And my only counter to that was, what if those people actually are trying to immigrate right now and their country will literally deny their visa mm-hmm. if they see anything on social media? Because I can name, well, I can think of rather, because I don't oh, want to yeah. talk for them, right? Mm-hmm. I can think of at least 10 to 20 people in my direct circle who are exactly in that position, right? Mm-hmm. And then on my end, I'm like, it's ridiculous to me that these American people who are morally grandstanding don't even bother wikiing my country and speaking mm-hmm. about my issues, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, don't make this a game, man, because you're going to lose. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, lots of interesting things happening in game design perpetually. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's also that reflection of how one would say how game theory, which is one different, we want to talk about spycraft and all of that, is really talking about how people are motivated. And that same motivation, especially when I deal with it in mental health, is how have the beliefs about about these motivations for safety perpetuated mental health problems that should that's right could have been addressed uh, in other ways. Also, how much is that standpoint of someone who is I'm going to say the standpoint of unhealthy yeah. in the community also poisoning the rest of the community. Not that you want to excise them, but it means that there has to be a different way of operating with them, and they have to understand there's a different way they have to operate with it, too. Right, right exactly. And that's a big one with just dealing with couples. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's hard, especially since culturally neurodivergence and mental health and disability and accessibility all have different definitions Mm -hmm. and different things attached to it according to where you are. Like mental health in the Philippines is basically, nobody talks about it, right? Mm. And uh, the the free resources are few and far between. And there's also a dangerously Catholic perspective to many 
therapists Mm -hmm. where they will, for example, force people to always think about forgiveness and God and bring God into their Mm -hmm. relationship. And I'm like, I'm queer (laughs) and the Catholic church hates me. So I really don't need God. And I've proven Mm -hmm. that to myself years and years in that I, that God has done nothing for me. Has the universe done many things for me? Absolutely. Do I believe that there's something out there? Possibly, right? I'm not going to shake its tree, right? I don't know what it is, but it's certainly not this Catholic abstract God that makes me want to hate myself for somehow failing an impossible standard. That's done nothing for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, mental health in the Philippines is just, I mean, if you're, it's, it's always you're sane or you're crazy. That's how they deal with it. And if you're crazy, you're broken. And mm. if you're broken, go pray. <laughs> and I'm like, what? It's <laughs> tricky <You know? Right. laughs> when, when the path to healing is something a little more complex, when it requires, again, changing some of these relationships, because it's been perpetuated at the standpoint of, community this communal idea may not actually be working it may be a function at this particular moment in time yeah depending on the circumstances but it does not function through the rest of time and even that standpoint of um and i say this with full respect to black women the idea of intersectionality of how many different roles how many different communities we dance in and the same thing comes with tabletop yeah. and just a sense of games um, just as you were talking about with the idea of uh, D&D being the global majority. No, from what I understand in Japan, I think China, the Call of Cthulhu is the big mm-hmm. one. And so, their own games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The What do they call it in China? The murder mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole, they have entire swaths of land of simulated games with no homage to D&D whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it's just... You cannot, like, please don't be a colonizer is usually what I end up having to write in many different forms to a mm-hmm. lot of people who want to do a thing, right? It, it's, a, it's such a complex issue to unpack because a lot of it also involves, it's almost like a poker game. That's how I see mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. They got their cards and I've got mine and I need to read their subtle cues in order to figure out what's really going on behind the hood because it's rare, I'll tell you, that a client is actively trying to do harm. They're really not is the thing. So then you have to do the very careful threading of the needles because you want this person to keep designing, but you want them to keep designing correctly. Mm-hmm. You want them to acknowledge that actually that story is not yours. And if you insist on making it, you must include more people into your collectivist into your collectivist um, activity of making a game, right? Like with, with Dagger Isles, people have asked me, why did you bring so many people on board? Mm-hmm. You're the lead designer. You could have written all of this. And I said, actually, no, I'm Southeast Asian, but I'm not from Singapore. I'm not fine. I'm not from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I'm not Thai. I can't write those stories and they cannot write mine. So mm-hmm. I need their voices to make my project happen because it's not my project. When I say my project now, I mean our project mm-hmm. because Dagger Isles would not exist without the whole team, right? So mm-hmm. it's um, I respect designers who want to try to dwell in their own fantastic worlds and make their baby, but sometimes it's not actually your baby, man. <laughs> well, especially because there's going to be blind spots. Yeah, exactly. People can see the blind spots that you can't. Yeah. I mean, oh, just think about driving. Can you always be looking over your? your left shoulder or your right shoulder when you also need to be aware of that car that's exactly. in front of you no yeah yeah, yeah. Oh. it's it's tricky especially with a there are deep seated roots on why um white cultures are fascinated by particular other cultures mm. and part of those deep seated roots is the idea of conquest and consumption you, if you are not somebody who is actively trying to colonize a space with your own ideas and make it comfortable for you, you are somebody who wants to put these things in a pretty menagerie and pick whatever you want at your leisure. Mm-hmm. That is, I'm not going to say violence and harm, but that's certainly extremely uncomfortable and needs to be unpacked. You oh, know, 
Oh, yes. You know, I think that's a beautiful place for us to take a break and let, let folks ponder this during the break. So I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls and Tethered with Pam Puzzle. Pam Punzala, uh, <laughs> game designer, CEO, and storyteller. So we'll be back shortly, folks. Hey, stay tuned. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Hello, all. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, here with Pam Unzon... Voice group names. Uh, <laughs> want to say it for... for- Punzalan. Yeah. <laughs> I swear there's not an episode that I do not screw up somebody's name despite all my efforts. <laughs> uh, uh, game designer, writer, CEO. And on that point of CEO, tell us a bit more about what your the company you work, your your CEO of there in Canada. Uh so it's a not-for-profit. Um cool. it's a... Uh, and yeah, CEO is still pretty accurate since that's executive direction. And my it was interesting because it was very serendipitous. It's my very first job in Canada because I literally just migrated last year. Oh. And a friend of mine who's in, uh, in my city or close to it was like, Pam, you need to apply to this job. And I said, this job seems to require this little thing that I don't have, which is Canadian context. The last time oh. I, was, I was living in Canada, I was a baby. And then I only stayed until I was 10. Then we moved back to Manila and then I came here. So I got mm-hmm. nothing for you. And they said, no, do it anyway. The last thing that'll happen to you is you'll fail. And that just means that you're back to the same point you were at. And I'm like, you know what? Fair. So yeah. <laughs> I ended up applying. They ended up taking me. And it's been a very interesting ride ever since. So names making games is actually quite old, old Mm-hmm. Uh, since 2012, they started out as a grassroots uh, organization sort of thing where they were trying to get game designers together, specifically women. The, the mm-hmm. queer wasn't really in the equation yet. Uh, so it was for, for femme, femme presenting folks who wanted to talk about game design, who wanted to get jobs in industry support. It sort of exploded with government grants and it's an, their own internal efforts in which now we try to create accelerator programs for studios run by marginalized developers. So we're always looking for partnerships, donations, and et cetera, so that we can make sure that studios full of people who want to tell their own stories make games that matter. So that's the basic spiel about DMG. Um, we're in a bit of a slowdown at this year because there's been a lot of uh, internal transition and et cetera, but we're hoping that uh, the anxieties and the troubles will vanish <laughs> by by now and uh, get a little better. So, Well, speaking and naming them do help. 
because there's also, <laughs> and I say this also not just because I'm a mental health provider, but in that standpoint of these things are sitting here with so many people probably most likely thinking about it and saying it and keeping it within themselves without realizing that the persons next to them on either side are also dealing with it. And that normalization, that anxiety exists. Anxiety mm-hmm. is going to happen. Actually, the person who does not feel anxiety, that's a problem. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because fundamentally, the person who does not feel anxiety is not connected to their emotions. And they will make decisions that can, as we've seen, harm people. Yeah. It's uh there's a lot of um good things happening in games, making games now that well, the pandemic hit us very hard apparently mm-hmm. before I'm before I even entered, in which DMG had grown used to in-person events mm-hmm. and uh, a physicality in their in their connections. So when the pandemic happened on a practical level, many of them actually moved out of the Ontario area. Mm. And then on another level, there was digital fatigue. You know, everybody's suddenly on Discord and every other platform. You get tired of looking, so you don't really engage a lot in many spaces that you are a part of nominally. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that things are easing up, now I have thoughts about that, but regardless oh, of my yeah. wishes, right? It's yeah. easing up because pandemic is gone or fading, like whatever, man. But sure, um, DMD is stepping up in-person events with all of the COVID precautions in place while we're also going a little bit hybrid and making sure that we have uh, our programs online. Mm-hmm. Like we are currently running a thing called Mayhem, where designers can basically do a boot camp on how to do game mm-hmm. design. So they present their concepts and we give them mentors who host talks that are all on Twitch. So I think DMG has helped a lot of people and I'm glad to be part of their journey so far. I'm moving into my second year with them and let's just see how it goes, uh, even with all of our troubles, financial or otherwise. Well, I think it comes with just being doing game, doing not so much games, but just doing business in the way the world is right now. Going back to that, either you're colonizing or you're putting it on for show. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, we want to be, we want to be a bridge, and yeah. I think this this goes back to another deep thing that I believe in strongly. One of the things that is constantly robbed of marginalized people in game spaces and in wider industries is -hmm. the privilege of failure. Mm -hmm. You must be perfect. You need to, right? You must be perfect or you're the enemy, even to your own. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, many industries and games especially require failure. Mm -hmm. Your job as a not-for-profit, this is what I believe now that I'm, of course, I'm self-talking myself, right? But the job of an advocate or the job of somebody actively engaged in not-for-profit structures is to make room for that failure and to provide support. You're not expecting them to fail, but you know that it is a reality. And the last thing these people need is someone else questioning their failures and going, well, maybe it's because you weren't good enough with the subtext of being you weren't white enough or you weren't cis-head enough, right? Or you weren't God, God-fearing God enough. Exactly, right? Like, it's it's ridiculous. The, the, the number of barriers and the number of expectations that communities, white or otherwise, place upon marginalized people. Mm. We need to fuck up. And we need to be allowed to do that. We need to learn to keep ourselves accountable. We also need to recognize our differences. But you've already heard me go off in many spiels on that. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, also, and I think that one of the big, other big ones there you just said about accountability. Mm-hmm. And this is something I noticed, especially, again, from the mental health side of it, accountability ha- has basically been weaponized. It's become yes. stupid, as opposed to considering it as something that is based in love and yeah. that care that, yeah, you're going to fail. You know, this accountability means we've got to recognize these problems. So, again, we don't have the biohazard growing, sitting in the closet. <laughs> from all that dirty laundry. Yeah, 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 exactly. Hmm. That's beautiful. And I'm glad to be, I would definitely be putting notes about Dame's uh, DMG in the notes here. So if you want to basically find out more, definitely check the show notes and you'll be able to see them there. I'm much appreciated, especially if you're in Canadian and if you're a Canadian or in Canada, 
uh, that's that's our current premise. We are trying to expand such that we will become a regional operation versus like a versus Toronto based because that's really where DMG started. Uh, many of our members are again outside. We have many members in B- in Montreal and also in British Columbia in particular, and a couple in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. So. We try and hard, but it's a group push. <laughs> so no doubt, no doubt there. So we talked a bit about the the nonprofit and being POC dealing with gaming, but I'm also curious, how is it showing up with queer gaming as well? So I've known I was queer, and of course you kind of have to start with yourself, right? Whenever okay. whenever you talk about queerness. I've known I was queer since I was 15. And Queerness in itself, as I have come to realize, is a decision that you constantly make while it is also who you are inexplicably and unapologetically, right? I found uh, myself. Right? Like you can't, uh, it's something that grows and expands and transforms and also at times recedes and minimizes itself, right? Mm-hmm. And undoubtedly, no matter what you do, because you're queer, your games will be queer. Now, what flavor of queer, what inclination of queer, whether it is a it is a queerness that is genuine and earnest, or it is a queerness that you are clinging to, because it just makes a lot more sense at this time than anything else. It is queer, right? Uh, and I know that academically, people have defined queerness not quite bolted in as sexuality, which is interesting. It's more of something that is an other, that is different, that is radical and strange, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Queerness also has several levels to it. So that's like that's like the one fact, right? If you're if you're mm-hmm. a queer designer, your games are queer. That's where I like I will fight people who say <laughs> otherwise, right? Um, but on the other hand, there are also intersections to queerness in which my queer reality may never be yours. And then there are also people who there's a very white strain of queerness that I cannot abide by as well, in which it's it's hard to like really describe it, but I can give examples uh, of how white queerness dominates the conversation in a very harmful way when it comes, especially in game design mm-hmm. or even just talking to other human beings, in which um, it's hard for me to talk about the specific the specificity of my queer issues when I get a lot of American well-intended friends saying, well, why don't you just fight your mom and dad when they don't agree with what you're saying? And I'm like, you understand, right, that in Philippine culture, that is a huge ass no, because then I'll literally have nowhere to go. And on top of that, people I don't know will all know that I'm gay. And then they're going to think I hate God and that I need God and that they should probably send me to conversion therapy, right? Like, it's, it's a whole lot of, you must understand that, even with all the problems that first world countries have, the fact that your country in some areas recognizes that you are actually human is very different from my country where it is enshrined in our marriage law that marriage is only possible between man and woman. Uh There is no common law. We don't even have divorce. And that's for straight people. We're not even seen as human. We don't even have a proper Magna Carta or a Bill of Rights. We only have a awareness bill, and even that's being fought, right? That informs more than you'll ever know for mm-hmm. any Filipino queer designer. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's a it's very interesting engaging with different with different queer folks from all around the world and hearing their stories and also understanding how even as we try to struggle and be different and be authentic to ourselves, the unique systems in which we come from inform both our trauma responses Mm -hmm. and also inform how we engage with other people and also how we try to inform ourselves and take care of ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. It's a whole new bag, right? So you open up the well, you open up that aspect of the, of our uh, uh, which very much hits with mental health is that aspect of trauma gaming. Yeah, how much of the games that have been built have been built around, shall we say, continuing to perpetuate trauma as opposed to healing trauma? Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Like um, when I first started designing, I noticed that a lot of people had not really talked about uh, a concept that I personally like to call Asian acceptance. Mm-hmm. I've literally made it a game. It is literally called Asian acceptance and it uses the mechanics of dread, mm-hmm. uh, that tower game where you have to yep. pull blocks and stuff. Right. Yep. Um, in my game, that tower is your heart. And each session of Asian acceptance is a day in the life of you being a person in the closet in an Asian context. Mm. And then all the little microaggressions that make you pull out parts of your heart or all of the things that make you put another block in properly in order to survive, the little microaggressions, the side comments, the burden of expectation, your own feelings and your own monstrosities and your own, the own sacred selves that you have mm. and the things that you must render profane. That's all there in that heart of yours. That's how I describe being in the closet. It was inspired by the fact that my father, um, and this is prior to me actually coming out and having a whole thing with my parents where I didn't talk to them for two years kind of level, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Prior to that, I guess my dad uh, had the suspicion that I might be gay because I was on the phone with him when he was in Canada trying to look for the house that we're living in now here. Mm -hmm. And he basically said, Uh, I want to make sure that you have a future with your spouse, whoever he or she may be. And I was like, we've never talked about this. So were you just saying that you know that I might be and you're okay with it? It was this whole Asian thing of like, Mm -hmm. how do you negotiate from here? Right. And that was when my best friend in the world, right? Like my best friend in the world told me, well, Pam, you you were just a, a recipient of Asian acceptance. He knows that there's a reality, but he doesn't want to talk about it yet. But he is he's hes saying that there's an elephant in the room and he may be OK with it. <laughs> the, the number of levels. Right? Oh, yeah. But even just what you said about you, the using dread and the Jenga tower or, well, popular trademark name Jenga, but the block tower. Yeah. Um, that is just beautiful. I mean, I can just now think about it, it's like. Oh, I could just think about the number of therapists that would love to probably use this in our therapy practices, especially most of the geek therapists out there, that this would be a beautiful game to be played. I mean, obviously it's a game, but still just what it means to have that perspective shift and to allow for that perspective shift that's ne- that's necessary for good therapy to happen. Oh, it makes me Jones. <laughs> I'm hoping to republish it at one point because it only got a digital release. Uh, so in this year, I plan on approaching a publisher that did right by my partner with uh, mm-hmm. with their game. And I'm like, hey, maybe you want to try to get oh, that one. Uh, so <laughs> Please let me know about it. And when you're ready to publish it, let's do an episode because I can target this so much towards the geek <laughs> sure. therapist, therapist community who this would be an ideal one, even for just for group work. Yeah. uh, Another game I'm quite proud of, although it's written as queer. That's my Mm -hmm. example of a queer game, right? It's called Our Armstice. That also has a digital only release. And it is about a lover waiting for their hero to come home from war. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing is just an exercise of one of you playing the hero and one of you playing the lover. And the whole, like the, the meta space of the game is the hero walking home. But what's actually happening in the game is both of you are thinking about the last conversation you had, the nature of the war, um, and and what it might be like now that everything is over and you must return to your heart. That's that's the whole exercise. Some people played it online and they were like, this hits hard. And I'm like, well, it should because that's the whole thing, right? Nobody talks about the intimacy in the wake of something terrible that you survived from. Right. It's it's very classic in fantasy, right? You the hero if hero kills God comes home, the end. You never see the home mm-hmm. scene. You know? <laughs> you never see what happens after. I mean, oh yeah, that's the that's one one big one I especially talk about with people, especially the ones who are dealing with relationship aspects and yeah. they're saying like, Oh, I want the happily ever after. It's like, really? Do you realize what that's <laughs> what happened when the roof leaks? What happened when the bills do? What happens when little Billy gets bullied at school? Yeah. That's part of having happily ever after. Yep. Yeah. And how much we've sort of gotten those the sanitized story about that because you cannot yeah. go off to war and not be changed by it. Yeah, like uh, 
my parents, even with my complications with them, I love them very much and I know that they love me uh, and they are trying their best to accept this queer thing, right? Mm-hmm. And they're doing pretty well for a, for a 70 plus year old <laughs> baby boomer generation, right? Mm-hmm. They've been married for 50 years, man. Mm-hmm. 50 years. And it's just, wow. And then when people ask them, how did they do it? My mom and my dad will always say the same thing. We did it together. There mm-hmm. was no I and you. There was only we. And then we determined the separate I's and how they fit, how they break apart, how mm-hmm. we can compromise. And mm-hmm. Sacrifices had to happen, but they were always informed by love. Because that's another thing that my mom and my dad like to say, that there's a difference between saying something, giving advice and thinking of yourself. We're giving advice and thinking of the other person while you're thinking of yourself is a very mm-hmm. key difference there. And that's how the relationship has survived mm-hmm. through, through two to three migrations, through finan- near financial ruin several times, through seeing by popping out six kids, <laughs> an only daughter who ended up gay, uh, um, and having a myriad of neurodivergent issues among their children that they're mm-hmm. still also rec- reckoning with because they don't actually really believe in the mental health thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot. And, um, and yet seeing them, because they very recently celebrated their, their 50th golden wedding anniversary, like literally last week, and seeing them continue to sing at each other and also have their cute little couple arguments. Like my father scolded my dad and my mom scolded my dad again for hiding the food because he has a little idiosyncrasy of like, if he sees food out, he puts it away. But mm. the thing with my family is we are toddlers. If we don't see the food, we forget about it. Right. So my mom <laughs> hit my dad on the arm and said, 50 years and you're still doing that. And they both had a good laugh about it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Well, I think there also comes as an example of they're living the example of accountability through love. Yeah. As a form of love, not as a form of punishment. Yeah, exactly. It's great. Like, they have become my model for an ideal relationship while knowing full well that they are human and they have their flaws. I don't need them to be perfect. I need them to Mm -hmm. be human. And they have been exemplary human beings. Like when I look at them and when I have looked at them, because now I'm very happily committed to one person, but when I was Mm -hmm. searching for my own partner, I always found myself thinking, can they even match the fingernail of Mm -hmm. what my dad or mom do in their relationship? If the answer was no, I was just like, I'm not fucking interested. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Literally a gold standard. Yeah. And that's something we all process. Well, I have enjoyed this chat immensely. <laughs> I'm happy. I'd be happy to come back. <laughs> oh, I'm glad to hear it. Like I said, I want to talk more about this game. <laughs> I want to help promote it as much as possible. Because believe me, the therapist market is a place that can something <laughs> like this immensely. Uh, so where can people find you? Where can they find any of the other games that you want to be able to start people down the road on? Um and contact you. Uh, so I have a card that's a C-A-R-R-D.co. That's usually how people get in contact for business. There is my email as well. Just reach out to me if you need any editing, et cetera, et cetera, consultancy. I'm looking for entry-level video game writing. So if you're willing to give me a shot, absolutely. I am primarily and unfortunately on Twitter. I am more happily on Blue Sky. And I do have a sub stack that I occasionally post articles on. I do not pressure myself into posting monthly. So if you're looking for a monthly drop of wisdom, you're not going to get it. But if you're looking for a gold nugget every now and then when Pam realizes that she has words for a thing, then sure, (laughs) sign up. So that's usually me. I'm the dovetailer everywhere. Uh, If not, you'll see Pam Punzalan. So there's that. All right. I'll try to get make as many of those notes are in the show notes as possible. So thank you again for being here and having this chat with me. Thank you for having me. It was lovely. Perfect. So this has been Perry Clark, licensed marriage family therapist on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Here with, I'm going to have you say your name so I don't screw it up again. <laughs> here with Pam Ponsalan. <laughs> Game designer, CEO, story writer. So welcome to 2024, folks. We've got more coming down the pipeline. 
Hopefully more will be talking about this uh, game in the future. And uh, stay tuned. And thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 